Okay, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, if you would, please, and kind of hover there. Um, I'm going to set this uh, subject up, so we'll read that in just a little bit. In uh, four weeks, we begin a new series in the Gospel of Mark. And I think the plan is to be about a year and a half in the Gospel of Mark. And before we get to that uh, uh, narrative, we are, we are going to be doing a small series here that I've called All of Life, which is seriously ambitious if you're talking about All of Life in four weeks, which is not the point of it. We, we looked at some things, true uh, to human character and true to our need and things that we need to be reminded of that are kind of universal to the Gil- at least the Gilbert Church. And uh, so next week, we're going to get to parenting which we've got hundreds if not thousands of kids that are represented by the parents in this room. So we're going to talk about what God thinks about parenting and the role of parenting and, and whatever the Bible says about absolutes, we'll deal with that. Week after, we're going to talk about finance and uh, really ultimately just a, another reminder, another refresher of, of, of God's money and what we're supposed to do with it. And then the last week, we're going to be dealing with work. Where does work fit in the gospel picture and what value does work have and, and uh, what happens if you don't like your job? Things, things like that, real, real practical things that I think people need to deal with. And, and today, I hope, is no different. Today, we're dealing with marriage. And uh, if, you, if you are married, you know why you need this. If you're not married, you need to listen because you will, all right? Everyone will need a discussion on this later. And I don't have to tell you um, the attack that marriage is under in our world, in our culture, do I? I don't have to get you too close to the story to go, oh, I didn't know there was a concern. Well, there's a concern. Um, those who survey this stuff say that there is a 50% decline since 1970. So 40 years, 41 years is a 50% decline. And those who are, who are uh, getting married, those who have been surveyed would say that there's uh, only four out of 10 say they're actually happy in their marriage. And, uh, and it gets worse, they say also, that divorce is twice what it was in 1960. So just in my lifetime, half as many people survive marriage. And they estimate that currently marriages, like, 40 to 50% won't make it. They'll end in separation. <clears throat> no surprise. No surprise, probably not to you. Um, I'm already telling you what you know, and that is that marriage is tough and it's not easy, and you should know why that is true as well. And that is because you take two self-centered, selfish, stubborn people and you move in together. Hence why marriage is difficult. And uh, so today I want to give you uh, nothing cute, but just simply five things to commit to in marriage. And, and most of what I'm going to talk about, for the bulk of our time, I'm simply going to give you what God thinks about marriage. Before I give you what I think are helpful reminders in it, um, I'm going to tell you what he thinks. And again, this is not an exhaustive list. There are many, many wiser men than I who could uh, probably slice it and dice it better, but we have uh, 35 minutes, and so this is my, this is my agenda today. Um, and I put it in this vernacular. It, um, Everybody buys a car. There's an owner's manual in the car. You take out the owner's manual, and all it tells you is about what it's supposed to do and how to make it do it. It's not the schematic. It's not how to repair the car. It's simply how do you make it operate. And so what I'm going to give you in these five points today is kind of like that. It is, it is basically uh, how is marriage supposed to work, and how do you make it work? So it's bigger level things than the minutia of how do I sort out a problem and, and how do I get this or don't, don't get that, that, that kind of thing. So I want you to have that in mind as we go through this list together. And as well as I want you to uh, just to understand the weight of what I'm going to say is what I believe God says about the uniqueness of our roles in marriage. So let's deal with the first thing, um, the first point I want to make, and that is believe your roles. Believe your roles. Now notice I didn't say know your roles. 
Um, I even wrestled with that, to be honest. When I sat down, I thought, well, who goes to Gilbert anymore? Like, I, I know some of you. I know maybe many of you, but I don't know all of you. And I, I'm not certain I know what you think about what God thinks about marriage. So I was wondering, well, maybe I should just talk about what they don't know. But then I look at some of your familiar faces, and, and I know you know. You've heard this before. And so I'm not suggesting to you to learn things you didn't know about what God thinks about marriage. I'm suggesting that you believe what God says about marriage because you know what God says about these things is under attack. It, it's questioned, isn't it? It's like everything else God has ever said in his word. There's, a, there's this perspective where people would say, things have changed. Man, they're different. That's a cultural thing. Man, you've got to read that with a, with a ton of help because it doesn't apply here anymore and... and uh, it's circumstantial, it's antiquated, it's too rigid, it's not just, it's unfair, and you just keep labeling what God said, and so you can put it away from you and say, it doesn't apply to me now. So there are parts of the Bible that are no longer are relevant, and so the world has taken that approach to the absolutes of Scripture, and I'm going to suggest to you, no, that's not true, I'm going to try to prove it this morning, but the reality of it is, um, I want you to believe your role. We're all said and done describing it, I want you to own it, as from God, the creator, to you and your circumstances. After all, God is the inventor of this wonderful thing called marriage, isn't he? It was his idea. And he said it was for our joy and for our good. And so in spite of what cultural voices say, in spite of what our flesh says sometimes or our feelings say sometimes, we have to own what God says ultimately. And so let's take a minute to look at the rules. Now, I'm going to lay them out as in the order that Paul does. Now, that does not suggest that their level of, of uh importance or, or one's greater than the other. They're simply in a list. But let's deal with the wise first because that's what Paul deals with in verse 22 of chapter 5 in Ephesians. Three simple verses, and this is what he says. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. You just heard a dirty word, didn't you? Can't even say it. Submit. That's a, that's a very difficult world, word in, in our culture. And so before you let your imaginations and potentially your anger run wild with you, let's deal with context. Because context is going to help us see what Paul is saying. As opposed to you just labeling the worst possible case scenario, let's actually see what he's, what he's talking about. And I'm going to do it by kind of pulling apart the, the letter of Ephesians, okay? Ephesians is a, a letter from Paul to the church in Ephesus. It's, divi it's divided more, more um, obviously in two halves. First three chapters, last three chapters. The first three chapters are very simple. They are God's, uh, the story of God and how he moves towards sinners in grace, okay? Let me, let me show it to you. Go back to chapter 2. We're going to read a few verses in this first little section, okay? Chapter 2, verse 1. Again, remember that Paul is dealing with how God moves towards sinners with grace, and this is what he says. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, and on and on he goes to talk about how bad it was. Now look at verse 4 but God. I suppose if, if, if that's all anybody ever told you after hearing about how bad it is, that's enough to liberate you. It was so bad. Out of all the words the Holy Spirit could use to describe the condition of the human heart, it, 
he says we're dead. And just, just to clarify that deadness, it's not passivity. It's not out cold and minding your own business kind of dead. This is at war, at enmity kind of death. This is struggling with God and his authority in our life. This is a rebellious heart towards God. That's what we were in Christ, but God, in verse 4, interrupts that story, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he's loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Look at verse eight. For by grace, you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You get the picture so far? Two halves of Ephesians, first half is God coming for us coming to us and for us. The second half of Ephesians, picking up in chapter four, is the story of how sinners who are saved by grace move towards God in love and obedience. Do you see the two halves? God moves towards sinners that were with him in love to radically transform them. Sinners who are loved by God move towards him in obedience and faith. Make sense? And love. Okay, that's how this is going down. Look at chapter four, verse one. This, this is Paul's reflection, or so what, to this wonderful grace alone gospel that we've heard of. He says, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gent- gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Skip down to uh, chapter 5, verse 1. Paul again says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And skip down to verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Right there you have this depiction from the apostle's mind to the church who's been saved by grace. Because you've been transformed, go and imitate Go walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Go live this life of love. That's what the, that's what the gospel does to sinners. Suddenly something's different, and I'm focused on everything else but myself. At least that's what the gospel can transform us to be. And in this list, at that verse 15 and following, he brings up some specifics, and he ends that paragraph with this sentence, submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. One of the so what's to the gospel received is that we become submissive people to one another. Submission is the role of every believer, not just to wives. Submission is how Paul is, is describing what it looks like to imitate Christ, what, what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy as a submissive life. One who considers others' needs more important than our own. One who gives of ourselves continually. That's what Paul has in mind here. Context is everything to understand what he's saying. And walking in love, as Paul talks about here, biblically, in verse 21, is defined as submission, that dirty word that nobody likes to hear about. And yet, in the apostle's mind, that's what Christians do. We submit to one another. It's mutual submission as we submit to each other. It's the business of, of every believer. Now, in, chapter tw- in verse 22 through the end of the chapter, and even into chapter 6, Paul gets specific Because I can just imagine someone in the church reading this thing about mutual submission and the first thing that comes out of their mouth, does that mean, and then you start listing all these particular circumstances you're in to decide whether that passage applies to you and your circumstance. Paul goes, okay, let me help you. Wives, you ready? 
Then he says, husbands, you ready? Kids, you ready? Masters, uh, slaves to masters, you ready? And he just starts unpacking the scenarios of our life in which we respond to one another and says, okay, it's mutual submission. That's, what I'm, that's where I'm going here. Now, let me, uh, ladies, get real specific with what Paul says for you as a wife. Let me start by defining what it means to submit. Submit means to relinquish one's right and fall in line by willingly placing yourself under another's authority and care. In other words, it's a voluntary, voluntary response to God's will to give up one's independent rights for another. Let me give you the example, the gospel. The triune God existed in perfect harmony for eternity past, and at some point in time in God's sovereign wisdom said, let's save man. The son willingly submitted himself under the, the authority of the father and under the care of the father to this mess and our struggle and our pain, to go to the cross to bear our shame, to be crippled for us. He willingly put himself under that. And that's why Paul says, imitate him. That's what he did. If, if God, the creator, can come stoop low and get under that authority for the sake of another, then that's exactly, ladies, what I think marriage is. It's that voluntary, willingly placing yourself under the, under the care of another. It means to fall in line under his love. That's what it means. As Jesus fell in line under the love of the Father, so wives are called from Paul's line to us in verse 22 to submit themselves to their husbands. So let me just quickly review everything we've said so you don't miss what I'm saying. Submission is the biblical role for every believer. Christ is the example of the submission that we are to have. Submission is the willing choice to, uh, to be under someone's authority and care. It's voluntary. And in this specific case, Paul is calling it to women, to wives. Notice what I didn't say. This, this role of submission isn't due to inferiority. It isn't due to ability. It's not due to value or worth or intelligence. It has nothing to do with anything more than the role that God has called wives to fill. We're co-equals created in the image of God. There is, there is no difference but roles, okay? Let me put it in this way so you can understand how this chain of command, at least in God's mind, comes to, to you. Wives are to submit to God by submitting to their husbands who submit to God. Everybody's submitting to God, right? We can trust God and the channels of authority that he's created and put us in, and we submit to our husbands as he submits to God. That little chain of command right there, that little chain of authority, I know it sounds tough. And you know why? Because it's not, it's not natural. It's supernatural. What's natural is control. What's natural is rebellion. What's supernatural is willingly lining up under someone's love, trusting God's authority. Now, let me show you where the problem starts. You got to go all the way back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 3. I'll give you context and then I'm going to give you a verse uh, that's describing the curse, okay? And I'll tell you where this inclination in us to rebel against authority comes from, okay? And, and where the problems in marriage stem. Genesis chapter 3. Let me give you context. Um, man and woman were created in God's image and had a great time in the garden. And God said, knock your socks off, have fun, this is for you, I love you. And, and by the way, just this tree in the middle of the garden, just stay away from that one. Don't eat that one because that one's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And if you eat, you will die. Suddenly the serpent, Satan, comes in and suggests that that's a lie from God, that, that God is simply insecure and holding out on Adam and Eve, and that if they really want to be like God, they should eat. 
And uh, so Eve, apart from her husband, ate. And then took it to her husband and said, you eat. And they did. And here at the end of chapter 3, um, the writer gives us three curses. How God deals with the serpent, how he deals with woman, and how he deals with man. And it is forever. Currently, right now, what we're dealing with is this curse from thousands of years ago. Our ancestors rebelled, which made us rebellious people. We're sinners too. Now, so I just want you to get the curse, though. Look at verse 16 of chapter 3 of Genesis. Now, let me suggest to you here, even though it's entitled to the woman, he said, and that's true, but there are, I think, two outcomes that hurt both man and wife in this particular curse. Here's what he says. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. That's a message for another time. We're skipping that. We're dealing with the last sentence. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Um, It's important to understand what the word desire is there. It is not like, oh my gosh, my husband's hot. It's not that desire. And it's not like I want to get close to him. I can't, I just, everything about him is warms my heart and I desire him. That's not what this word means. The word desire means to seek to control. It, it means to exert your will, to compel. The curse on, on Eve and every one of her children was to control the situation. It's interesting that the sin that she committed looks like the curse she has to deal with. The sin she committed was go outside of the authority of God to take headship at a moment and make a decision for humanity that plunged all of the sisters forevermore into conflict to want to try to seek to control her husband. Now look at the little section that he says about the husband, and he shall rule over you. That doesn't sound good either, because the word rule means to dominate. It means to lord it over. It's the heart and the attitude of someone trying to be a tough guy. So right here, right here, this one little sentence, you have the depiction of all feminism and chauvinism that's ever landed on this planet. Women who want to go outside of the authority that God has placed over the headship of man and man to try to keep it in a bottle by being controlling and heavy-handed and not loving as Christ. That's the curse. That's why it's not natural. That's why you need Jesus. That's why you need the gospel. That's why you have to be transformed to be anywhere close to being able to love as Christ loved and submit as God um, calls us to, right? The fall screwed it all up. The desire for women to, to lead and for men to control the situation, it's all because of the fall. Now, it's important to remember and to tell yourself that these particular commands from Paul to the church are not there just in case you need them. And here's why. Every command is written because of propensity, because of nature. This is what you are. So the commands come. Let me give you an example. So next week we're going to deal with parenting. And the scripture has a few things to say about the role of a parent and child in their relationship to each other. One, it says, children, obey your parents. Then it says to fathers, don't exasperate your children. Why would Paul suggest that that, uh, children obey? Why wouldn't they naturally obey? Because their heart is bent towards evil continuously. A father wants to exasperate and make life too hard and a kid can't perform and so a kid rebels and there it goes. And so Paul just lays down the command. Here, dads, don't exasperate. Kids, obey. Wives, submit. Willingly line up under the love of your authority, which means you're following God's authority. Husbands, love your wives. Now we're going to unpack that right now. Here's what it says to the husband. 
Verse 25, we're going to read to verse 30. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Let me, if you want to leave here with really, really simple outline to what, understanding what Paul says or, or what I would call key words to, to leave here with, if submit is the key word of verse 22 through 24 as the call of God to wives, then love is the key word for husbands to their wives. You simply look at those two words, you have the roles of husbands and wives, submission and love. And let me just tell you that this word love has profound meaning. This word will wreck you, gentlemen. It's almost hard to describe because you're going to feel underwater. But let me tell you what God says. Paul says, as Christ loved the church, so this idea of unconditional and this idea of eternal and sacrificial love, this is a kind of love that is not in response to kind of love, but in spite of kind of love. You know what I'm saying? So if you want to understand love, just see your own life, your own sin, your own rebellion apart from a savior. If God would simply look at your life and your heart and your intentions and your motives and your secrets apart from a covering, what would he find? And yet he loves anyway. He's faithful anyway. He gives anyway. Nothing can separate you from him. That's the love we live under, the gospel. This, in other words, is, is not if she's nice to me kind of love. This is not a if she does what I expect of her kind of love. This, this is not if she becomes this or becomes that kind of love. This kind of love, now, now get this, is a decision and an expression that has absolutely nothing do, to do with the behavior of another. You, you know how many times we sit in counseling and, and we talk between couples and what always comes up is the tit for tat, the kind of he did, she did, and we all climbing on that. Guys, this takes that away completely. You got nothing to say. This love says I love in spite of anything someone gives me. It's like Christ. The, the Spirit of God couldn't be more clear on the standard to say Jesus is an example of the love to imitate Christ that way. So let me just ask you guys, just, just for the experience of it, how does Christ love you? Does he love you based on performance? Because if he loves you based on performance, you won't even get home and out of the car before you're in hell, okay? Does he, does he love you um, and commit to you because you've made a promise to him and you wear a, what would Jesus do, bracelet? Is he committed because you show some interest? Does, does he um, sacrifice because he looks at you and says, oh, they're sharp. I mean, they're exceptional. Look at, look at what they'll do. Man, better pick them. No. The gospel tells a different story, doesn't it? The love of Christ for us tells a different story. It is a love in spite of love. It's in spite of our rebellion constant failure, we are the ultimate depiction of what it is to be an adulterous, unfaithful people. Almost minute 
by minute. Our motives are jacked up and no one would know it. Our thoughts are twisted and no one can see it, but he does. And he doesn't quit. He never accepted you based on what you did or how you behaved or how sharp you were. He gave you what you didn't deserve. That's how he loves you. Paul says, husbands, it's simple. Just love your wife like Christ loved the church. Love her like that. In spite of everything, in spite of all things, love her like that. The kind of love and leadership we're called to, gentlemen, is a do-what-needs-to-be-done, never-quit kind of love. It's a person who doesn't sit around and keep score on who does what and who doesn't do the other thing. This is the kind of love that gives full attention to her needs. It's the kind of love that is concerned about every issue at the highest passionate level with all speed and urgency, just like Jesus. Pretty heady. And that's why in verse 28, just to make the point a little bit more precise, he says, hey, and, and let me use another illustration, just like you love yourself, like your bodies. I work in the garage, I tell you this all the time, and I work really fast and clumsy because I'm in a hurry, and I have a tendency to injure myself from time to time, okay? My boys at this point in my life just laugh at me. Doesn't matter how much I'm bleeding, they're laughing. I dropped a cutoff wheel on my knee a couple weeks ago and chopped through the front of the leg, and this is how absurd it is. If I saw this hole in blood leaking out of my leg, and I said, oh, big deal. No, I got in the car, I drove to urgent care, sat there for five hours waiting to get stitched up. And I did that because I love me. <laughs> I care about me. It's a no-brainer how I feel about my concerns and my needs. And Paul simply says, husbands, husbands, treat your wife like it's your body, like it's your heart. Like it's you will treat them like that. And you're going to care. You're going to care at the highest level. Feel that way. One writer said it this way. This is heady. Listen to this. God has called the husband to represent Jesus by loving his wife unconditionally and sacrificially. To love like Christ means the husband must yield his desires and his rights to his wife. He's to lay down his life that she might be found spotless, holy, and blameless. He is to surrender his life that she might be highly esteemed and fulfilled. He treats her with respect and dignity, viewing her as a co-equal in life and ministry. The husband, like Jesus, has been called to lead his wife by serving her unto death, to encourage her, to uplift her, to protect her. That's quite a picture, isn't it? And let me just tell you, if a, if a husband loved his wife like that, the wife's role becomes piece of cake. Who wouldn't line up under that kind of concern? Who wouldn't willingly choose to line up under that kind of love if that kind of love was that selfless and that giving and that sacrificial? You understand what I'm saying, gentlemen? This is heavy work. And let me just say this before I move on to other points. I think some of us are far too passive in our leadership. I think you've run into the, whatever you consider, the stone wall, the immovable object called your wife. In, in your mind, um, you don't see it getting better, and so you've tapped out. Emotionally, you've tapped out. You've taken some space between your role and your situation, and so you're just passive, and because, because her natural, not supernatural tendencies is to try to get it fixed and own it and lead it, you just kind of wimp. Let me just tell you, I believe, I believe all throughout the scriptures, not just, not just here, that the burden is on us, gentlemen. We set the tone for the leadership. 
It, we, uh, God's priority is on leadership, always is. Leaders who love like Christ. So can I encourage you passive ones to confess it and step up? Love is Christ. Okay, now we've got to move on because we've got just a handful of minutes left. But I want you to see why I spent so much time on the roles that you probably thought you already knew. Because the world is rewriting the narrative on what God says about marriage. And uh, if we're not careful to say it over and over again, we're going to believe it. But this is what God has. The gospel lived out in wives. The gospel lived out in husbands as they both imitate Christ. Amen? Let me give you a couple other points. Four more real fast. If the first one is believe our roles, here's the second one. Change your expectations. I think it's hysterical how people come to the altar. Like 31 years ago, I stood before my father, who was the pastor, and he married Suzanne and I. And everybody does this. You don't really con- like think about it consciously, I don't think. But everyone comes to the, that moment with this fictitious bucket called desires. And in that bucket, you've placed all these dreams, like these things you've thought about. Like, hey, this is going to be... Lots of fun, lots of sex, lots of future, lots of this. Lots. You just keep putting stuff in this bucket. And you think that this is all going to happen. And as soon as you step to the aisle and say, I do, the dreams become demands. It moves from all these desires to expectations immediately. And suddenly now you're frustrated because all your dreams aren't coming true. And nobody promised to meet your dreams. We do that. Like we go with an unrealistic perspective like, oh, everything will be complete. I'll be happy and fulfilled and, and have things. We'll go on vacation. It'll be great. It'll be 10 times better than my folks. It'll be awesome. And as soon as you get married, the expectations go to, uh-oh, they better. And we spend the rest of our married life striving for these things, fighting for these things, or experiencing the disappointment of never getting there. We end up in counseling, accusing each other of things that were never supposed to be a part of the marriage story. So can I uh, suggest to you this morning that you adjust your expectations? First of all, even though the scriptures make this pretty clear, you were made for each other, and joy is one of the reasons why you were made for each other, but you were never made to ultimately fulfill each other. You want to adjust your expectations, just take that burden off of it. You're only meant to be ultimately satisfied in a relationship to God through Jesus Christ, your Lord, period. He's the one who won't disappoint. He's the one that'll care eternally and never drop you. He's the one that will transform you. He's the one that will meet your needs. The ultimate satisfaction is Jesus, not your wife and not your husband, so adjust your expectations. And let me just tell you this, what you probably already know. Your spouse is incapable um, of delivering at the level of your dreams because it would require them to be God. You can outdream your husband or your wife's ability or capacity. So adjust your expectations. Here's the third thing. Prioritize your commitment over your feelings. Prioritize your commitment over your feelings. Um, your commitment that you made in marriage is so, so much more than a vow before a pastor. It's a covenant before God. And you need to see it that way, and you need to carry it that way. And some of you are sitting here absolutely certain that, that your marriage is over, 
or you want it to be over, and I want you to wrestle with this thing called covenant. God is into covenants. He is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. Um, He feels passionately about covenants. For instance, the covenant he made to sinners who are constantly warring with him sounds like this, to never leave us or forsake us, to not treat us as our sins to deserve, to give us an eternal life that will never perish, that no one or no thing will snatch us from his hand, that as far as the east is from the west, so far he will remove our transgressions from us and say, what sin? This is the covenant that God through Christ has given to the church. That's what he's done. That's the kind of commitments he, he has made to us. And that's why he feels the way he does about the marriage covenant. Because it's a picture of his covenant and his promises. That's why he says in Malachi, I hate divorce. You think these promises don't matter. You think love is not accomplishable. You, you think that you're about, you're the point of the story. And I'm telling you, these covenants matter because it's a picture of God and his people. That's why Paul says in response to this gospel saved by grace, right, that no one should boast, go there and be imitators. Do it like Jesus did it. Make your commitments and keep your commitments, just like Jesus did it. Be like Christ that way. The point is pretty simple. Your feelings are going to tell you um, there is something more important, and that's not true. And I understand where feelings come from because you get married. Maybe you get married in a very superficial way and, and your wife is getting older, your husband's getting older and gravity's winning. And you go, oh, I didn't sign up for that. You will disappoint each other. You will see each other's worst. And by the way, it will always be a surprise. In fact, if you knew each other's worst before you got married, you wouldn't get married, so you have to deal with that. You will be probably on the list of the people who've hurt you the most each other, that you're the cause of each other's worst pain and sadness. That'll happen in marriage. And you're going to feel different than your commitment. But let me just remind you of a truth. I got this from Tim Keller. I love this statement. He says, wedding vows are not a declaration of present love, but a mutual binding promise of future love. That's why I tell people who are in a hurry to fix a problem, you're not old enough yet. Just get older. Just get older, and then you'll find out what love's really connected to. Very little for you. It's a decision you make for someone else. He goes on and says this, when moments come where you find your spouse unlovely, you must remind yourselves that when Jesus looked down from the cross, he didn't think, I'm giving myself to you because you're so attractive to me. No, he was in agony. He looked at us, denying him, abandoning him, and betraying him. And in the greatest act of love in human history, he stayed. And he loved us, not because we were lovely to him, but to make us lovely. Make sense? Another thing. I want you to prioritize your own need to change over your spouse's need to change. Uh, People who write cute sentences, someone said this, that um, women marry men hoping they'll change them, but men marry women hoping they'll never change. And I suppose there's a lot of truth in that. Everyone has these expectations that somebody's changing. But what happens immediately after you get married is you find out how selfish this wonderful person is. (laughs) And then you find out this wonderful person finds how selfish you are. And yet you make the mistake of thinking their selfishness is a bigger problem than yours. 
Isn't that true? Two selfish people and only one guilty one. We're going to have a fight. <laughs> so what do you do? This is not trying to be oversimplistic. This is the power of this story. Remember the gospel. Every, everything we talk about has the punchline, the gospel. What does the gospel say? Remember, we talk about it this way, that the gospel has two sides to it. This gory, I don't want to look at it, bad news side of the gospel and the beautiful good news side of the gospel. Tell yourself the whole gospel. The Bible says clearly that we are more sinful and more wicked than we ever feared possible. All I'm suggesting to you is stop pretending that that's not true. When you're in conflict and when you're not getting along in marriage, just look in the spiritual mirror and say, I'm far more sinful and wicked than I ever feared. I've got a problem. And the only person you can adjust or address is you. You can't change them. You can't convert them. You, you can't get in their heart and bring conviction. That's the Holy Spirit's job. The only person in this story that you can actually work with, you, right? So the second half of the gospel is beautiful. It is that you're far more loved than you ever dared hope. So the gospel is both revealing and transforming. All I'm suggesting to you is that you rest in that gospel and work on your sin because you can't work on theirs. One last thing. There are a lot of points to be made in a discussion about marriage. Um, you can go to seminars. In fact, we've got a seminar coming up pretty quick with David, uh, Paul David Tripp, which you should get involved with uh, as soon as you can because I, I'm certain slots will go fast. We actually asked Aaron to bring in a book called What Did You S Expect? So maybe you could... You know, he's going to say way better, more precise things than I have ever said. You might want to grab this book. If this sermon has hit you between the eyes, you might want to go grab this in the bookstore and read it. And I guarantee you there's way more points in this than I've ever made about marriage. But I only want you to be great at one thing, two things, sort of. They go hand in hand. There's lots of things you can do to marriage, in, in marriage to adjust your life and, and to make things um, maybe get better. But I want you to be great that repentance and forgiveness. You are a sinner saved by grace. And you're trapped in this body of flesh that's always at war with the God-loving soul of you. And they're at war all the time. And you're at war with your spouse. So the sharpest tool in your marriage drawer should be, I'm sorry, I've sinned against you. Will you forgive me? And your response is, yes. And Why? Because of the resource of forgiveness that we have as his church. We are the sinners who deserve to be in hell. And when Jesus was teaching about forgiveness, he says, you should forgive each other 70 times 7. In other words, an unlimited number of times. Why? Because the source of your forgiveness is unlimited. God slice and dice in detail every motive of our heart said, I forgive you in Christ. What sin? And we act like our judgment and our perspective is greater than God's holding Resentment and bitterness towards our spouse. I'm just telling you guys, repent and forgive. And I'll, I, I can promise, if you repent and forgive, your marriage will get better as you grow into Christ. Amen? All right, let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this um, truth and for how practical it can be. Every man in here needs to love more and better like Christ. Every woman needs to trust God through trusting their husband more like Christ. The gospel is our hope. The gospel is our answer. The gospel is our example. God, I pray we wrap our hearts around that truth today as we live for you in our marriages. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.